Free Talk Live. Welcome to Reigns and Edge. This week, GOP presidential candidates debate without Donald Trump. These same debaters say America is in decline, but what are the numbers? Wagner mercenary chief presumed dead in a plane crash. Tech billionaires want to live forever. And that DNA information you gave to the genealogy site and opted out of sharing, law enforcement is probably looking at it right now. I'm Henry Raines. I'm Mark Edge. And this is Raines and Edge. Mark, how are you doing this week? I'm doing great. It's, uh, it's another great week. I'm uh, curious about this uh, Republican debate. I read the news on it, but I can't say I watched it. Well, I did not watch all three hours of it. But I watched the three-minute highlight clip completely. I, I did do that. <laughs> the whole thing. Because we are the eyes and the ears of the people who don't want to be the eyes and the ears. <laughs> right. Or their eyes and their ears have better things to look at and listen to than a stage full of middle-aged Republican presidential narcissistic candidates or Democratic narcissistic candidates because... That's pretty much the only ones that will put their family through what it takes to run for president in these United States of America. Yeah, um, you know, I've often said, and I still, uh, I, I'm sticking with it, is is that the people who are w- people who are able to win our presidential uh, election are not the kind of people that we want to win our presidential election. It takes a lot, and it really takes something out of your family and. It uh, takes something just soulless to be able to stand up there and deal with all the heckling and all that stuff. I like that word, soulless. (laughs) (laughs) That was the word, strangely, that I came up with while sitting there eating a rubber chicken dinner, listening to the senior senator from Delaware back at the Air America event that then later became President Joe Biden. I just thought, man, this guy can take the ridicule of an entire room of Republican talk show hosts, stand there and act like he expects applause, and then go shake hands at the door. I I just, I I mean, wow. Like, the normal person could not handle that level of rejection. You know, it's interesting that you phrased it that way, about expecting applause. (laughs) <laughs> and I would probably be sorry for telling this anecdote, but you know my daughter Janet, who's theater major, started a theater company here in uh, Florida locally, community theater, but um, professional theater. And she long has had that performance bug. And probably from when I used to change her diapers on the <laughs> wrestling ring, when she, I would bring her to... Work, not to work out in the wrestling ring, but to because I needed to have her with me because her mom was doing something when I went to the wrestling ring to practice. Somebody's got to watch her. Yes, well, and she watched a lot, and I think that's probably when she first got her taste of performance art. And then uh, I think she was about three years old when I took her to see, uh, as you know, her mother, Susan, who... Uh, as a professional uh, singer in churches for the last 30 years or so. The, yeah, like choral the stuff. talent show. And I, of course, had three-year-old Janet next to me 
uh, to watch the talent show. She wouldn't go to the formal church service. She would be in, in the children's area. But she was with me for the talent show. And after her mom performed, she leaned over to me and said, when is my turn? And then, but <laughs> what you were saying, fast forward to second grade, and she came home one day and said, yes, the teacher had me sing in front of the class. And I said, well, how did that come about? And I guess she was singing in class. And I don't think it was a, an act of charity <laughs> or generosity by the teacher that's caused her to say, Janet, would you like to come up and sing in front of the whole class? You bet. <laughs> yeah, brought, the teacher probably thought that was a way of, of shutting down and, and crushing any ambitions of a creative person <laughs> in her class, but not, not Janet. She said, of course. And I said, well, how did that go? This is after she got home from school. So how did that go, Janet? She goes, I thought there would be more applause. <laughs> Well, I love that. I'm going to call that. I'm going to call that obtuse at best. Um, you know, perhaps. Like, you know, I don't know. I wasn't there. Maybe the teacher was trying to foster uh, behavior, but it sure sounds like uh, you, you had a better picture. Let's give her the. If she's still even, <laughs> if that teacher is still even with us. 25 years later, let's hope that. That's one nice thing about the, the victories over uh, over. Uh, petty teachers is, is she'll always outlive them. I think I don't know how many I don't know how many students have managed to have that comeback. But uh, you know, if I was ever embarrassed, thinking back on any instance that I was embarrassed by a teacher, I could have come back with, "Well, at least I'll outlive you." Yes, and and if you don't, I guess you have. She has the last laugh, or he has the last laugh. <laughs> anyway, there was plenty of applause at the GOP uh, debate. Yeah. To the point that I think the uh, the hosts of the debate on Fox News, by the way, uh, had a little bit of struggle to control the crowd. They were quite strident, uh, both in their approval and disapproval of the different candidates. So first of all, let's run down the lineup and see if I can remember everyone that was on that stage. Uh, let's start with, with your boy, Vivek Ramaswamy. And why is he mine? Live listener. Yes, he is. He's he's a fan of you and uh, Ian and the whole crew up there. I know he's not a fan of me because I was no not associated with uh, Free Talk Live in in any formal sense whatsoever. Not that this is all that formal. <laughs> we had uh, Mike Pence and Chris Christie, uh, former. South Carolina governor and UN ambassador Nikki Haley, and then we had mentioned DeSantis at this point. We had our governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. Yeah. We had now this was something that I had forgotten. I knew that he was a former Arkansas governor. I didn't know he was former uh, Drug Enforcement Administration head, but he reminded me quite a few times when he was on that stage. Uh, even in the, the short hour that I, I listened to, Asa Hutchinson. We had, now I, I'm starting to struggle. I know we had the Nikki North Haley. Dakota governor. What? Nikki Haley. I said Nikki Haley. Okay, sorry. South Carolina governor, uh, 
UN ambassador. Who is that? It's it sounds like sour gum. It's Gorgum. Oh, Tim Scott, the current South Carolina yeah. governor, was there, and the uh, you know the quite diverse for a yeah. Republican gathering. We had a black male and a white, what Indian descent female. Um, Doug Burgum. Pardon me. Doug Burgum. So it sort of sounds like sour gum. Yeah. For for someone in my age, you know, and you have to. You got to use association to get through this. Yeah. So. My my, we'll we'll get into some of the actual positions, but what's more important is to handicap the people and say who won and who lost, which is what pundits do. What what opinionated people that, that opine on the radio would do, and I, I'll start with something. Maybe you will uh, contest with me, or maybe not. Okay. I was surprised at what an empty suit Ramaswamy was. I was okay. expecting uh, a lot of, you know, because he's done very well for where, where he started in the polls, and he's got this surge going into the, the debate, if single-digit surges are considered surges. And he, he knew the applause lines. He knew what would get an applause. And he had so little substance behind any of it. Um, I'll save that examples unless you want to just um, respond to my first impression. Well, um, you know, the, the little bit that I watched, uh, I, I'm not rooting for any of these people. With, uh, you know, trying to put the military at the border and previously advocating Across for... The war. Uh, right. Uh, in case of Ron DeSantis. Military incursions into Mexico... Um, I just think that this, I, I can't stop. I have to step down and, and talk about that first. This is such a breathtakingly bad idea. I mean, you have to be, um, you know, a warmonger of the highest sort to advocate for the idea of sending the military across the border. Now, just remember, these what people are signaling. What are we going to do to those Canadians, Mark? <laughs> The Canadians can keep whatever they've got going on there. I do not want to take any territory and thus any citizenry from the Red Horde to our north. Um, but uh, as far as Mexico goes, I think that it's a uh, it's just a bad idea. If you essentially what's going on in Mexico right now is a revolution. Now nobody wants to look at it that way because the United States has some complicity because of its drug consumption in the war on drugs that is causing the cartels uh, to you know take over there. But this is essentially a group of armed individuals that are offering goods and uh, that are offering services to individuals in their area. And apparently, the Mexican government has been bad enough at it for long enough that people are willing to consider. Perhaps really good at it. <laughs> well, the Mexican government's uh, these these cartels are, um, you know, they're I mean they're they're providing services to people, and people seem to want them for whatever reason. Um, and bringing in a predator drone, it may change some organization. Like maybe if they're in a fortified area, and you drop a Hellfire missile on them, um, the survivors will then scatter into the community and begin living um, in people's homes, and then you have to kill abuelitas in order to, uh, to you know, continue your war. But no, it's just a bad idea. Um, you know, I, well, the, let, let me add a little bit more background to that, because uh, we have 
the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, who really has put some uh, mileage behind this on the stump, uh, on the stump speeches that he gives. He's going to kill them stone cold dead, which I thought pretty much every time you kill someone, they're stone cold dead. Is indeed, but uh, he well, you can't. Yeah, a little, a little, uh, you know, uh, flowery language that goes a long way in the. Uh, well, he's uh, actually talked about. You said crossing the border, but what he's actually talked about is crossing the border. But he wants to use special ops, U.S. forces special ops, to insert into the Mexican, past the border into the Mexican uh, country, and conduct. Special ops operations, sort of like uh, we can think back to when the special ops went into Afghanistan before we actually invaded Afghanistan. Now, technically, if you put special ops in, you have invaded, but yeah. as far as invaded as a, a, a large force of um, military. Now, we have uh, special ops. I'm, uh, Central Asia, they've done different things. They've gone into Africa. I, I guess technically we haven't admitted all this, but we pretty much know that there's been tactical operations around the world uh, that the special ops have carried out. But those have usually been in a country with uh, very much a... Uh, a government in crisis or a very weak government. An exception might be like when they went into Pakistan for Osama bin Laden. I mean, I think the Pakistani military and the Pakistani government would say that they were a functioning government with a strong military. And that probably anybody was, getting a paycheck certainly would. Yeah, it's probably a pretty act. You know, if you got nuclear weapons, you're a pretty strong military. So I, I would give the Pakistani military that. Um, but Mexico has a history of uh, being a sovereign country that we have treated as a sovereign country. Although At I times. do remember on the invasion of Iraq and uh, early on uh, discussing on the radio, you know, the, the, the idea, oh, we're doing this over the oil. And I had a caller call in and say, well, if we were going into Iraq for the oil, why don't we invade Mexico? And I said, well, we, we have invaded Mexico for the oil, which we did to protect Standard Oil. Down there. I think it was in the Yucatan or somewhere down there. And I was around. There's the still a an island in the Gulf of Mexico under dispute between the United States and Mexico. Not that there's a shooting war over it or anything, but it is in dispute. And the reason it's in dispute is, is because if we give it, if the United States allow, just concedes that it is Mexican, um, there will be they get 150 miles outside of it or something like that for drilling rights. So who's drilling around it now? I, you know, I don't know what to say about that other than there is an island that's in dispute between the United States and Mexico. You can do your own research. I can't even tell you the name of it. Well, I, I, I will. I, if that's the case, Mark, I'm not going to research it. <laughs> but I would you just, say that you've just got questions. I, I understand would say that there are oil companies that would know who could go uh, drill there and extract the resources and if, if it was worth it they would be doing it i would think that they would but i don't know whether the united states government has given those oil companies leave to do so um that would be my 
first question. Well, as we were running through this, so we got hung up there a little bit on Ron DeSantis. That was one of his bigger moments. I'm sure his his uh, campaign group thinks it was a strong moment. I thought that Ron DeSantis uh, has already fallen so far in the polls that he probably didn't hurt himself any more than he already has hurt himself leading up to the debate. I think people uh, or the handicappers or the pundits or the media personalities were waiting to pounce on something if he came forward with it. But his bad moments weren't much worse than his bad moments in general that he has with his strange... He had a difficult time because his notes got leaked, um, which... The notes were so mercenary. Like, you know, he didn't write them. They were written by some debate coach. And it's just so mercenary the way that they're discussed, you know, um, that it makes me wonder about these debates entirely. I didn't think, it didn't change my opinion at all of DeSantis. It changed my opinion of debates because now we're just getting a de- performance. You know, who got the, who got the, uh, gave the raspberries to whom and how'd that go? Well, that's been the way since Kennedy Nixon, um, 1960. That's, since TV has been broadcasting debates. And we've gotten it more so now that we have cable, uh, news services that are on a constant 24 hour news cycle where they actually put up with the, the timer one day, 24 hours, 23 hours to the GOP debate or the re- Democratic debate or whatever it is. So, all right, so moving on, Mike Pence, uh, I thought he showed significantly more emotion than a cardboard stand-up like he usually seems to be on the debate <laughs> stage. Poor guy. I mean, you know, this is the guy that has achieved the highest level of, um, you know, office in the land. And it, I, like the news media has given him no respect. The, uh, the voters don't seem to care. Uh, I'm, I, I'm not going to vote for him either. <laughs> you know, like it's just, uh, just I, a, I do want to say to the audience that anyone is expecting us to get into substantive policy decision. They're going to have to listen in the next segment of the show, because although we still have time in this segment, we're talking about the important things, our impressions, how they look, uh, (laughs) who who picked their nose, who didn't pick their nose. That's a bad idea. Yes. Oh, and and, and, uh, I guess that's a win for Ron DeSantis, because he didn't wipe his nose at all when I was watching the the TV show. Um, well, it seems like uh, the DeSantis and Ramaswamy were cons- widely considered the winners of it. Uh, who considered them the winners? Uh, sitting here looking at Washington, the Washington Post uh, is taking the uh, stance that um, are those pundits or polls? What do you think? Who do you think performed the best in the Republican primary debate on Wednesday among probable GOP primary and caucus voters who watched the August twenty third debate? Ramaswamy, 26%. DeSantis, 29% for winners. I think more importantly is the um, following the debate, who are you still considering voting for in the Republican primary? Uh, Nikki Haley had the largest jump from 29 to 46%. Ron DeSantis, 
a slight jump from somewhere below 67% to 67%, and Ramaswamy from 40 to 46%. Tim Scott also hits the numbers. And I just think it's worth pointing out to all the Democrats that call all the Republicans racist, Tim Scott, for all intents and purposes, appears to be black. Can't say I know much about the guy. Um, at 43%, this is 43% of likely GOP primary voters. These are as core as Republicans get. 43% say, yeah, they'd vote for him. They're lying. Because <laughs> if you got nothing else, just whip out the race card. Yes. Well, you don't want to say... You know, it's. I think I know what you're thinking. You know, I think I'm going to say. So I'm not going to say what you think I'm going to say because I know you will twist it. So I'm going to twist what I'm going to say first because I know how you think more than you know how I think. And that sounds right. That sounds yeah, like politics. Yeah, that's, today. that's how that's how polling is done. I have something much more scientific. I have the Drudge Report online poll, which is. 166,000 bots <laughs> on this. So not, not too different than what you say. Who won first Republican debate? Ramaswamy, 34%. And I will go back to one of my original statements on all this, and that was that he was an empty suit, but he knew what would get the applause lines, and in this case that may have served him well. Uh, we're going to barely have a minute here. I'll, I'll get a couple of these. Nikki Haley came in second, 23. I think Nikki Haley, and I would have said this if we had gotten that, that far into the segment, that she outperformed what I expected of her. Because it's all about outperforming expectation. Yeah, I think that, that, uh, that, that there's agreement coming from the Washington Post on that, too. Although they are definitely um, saying that the Santos by, by far beat the rest. And uh, DeSantis is in third in the Drudge Report. Uh, poll and Christie at sixteen percent. Okay, so thirty-four percent Ramaswamy, twenty-three percent Haley, eighteen percent DeSantis, sixteen percent Christie, and then there is a drop down to three percent for Mike Pence, uh, Tim Scott three percent, Asia Hutchinson one percent, and I guess they just didn't like him at all, and Burgum two percent. We're going to get into real substance on the other side. You won't see those guys again. You're listening to Reigns and Edge on Free Talk Live. No. Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases, but Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction and has implemented really cool features to ensure it's undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible and its network is protected from 51% attacks by their Chainlocks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering a Dash transaction complete, so it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Big thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org.
It's Rains and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. And I'm Henry Rains. And I'm Mark Edge. And we are dissecting, vivisecting, going deep to the bone on the GOP debate for the presidential candidates of the 2024 election. It was it was the debut show for the series. You know, there's a whole primetime series coming up of debates, and this was the uh, season premiere. I think 12 million people were watching, which by today's uh, standard of the death of broadcast TV and cable TV is a heck of a lot of people. No telling how much the engagement, I don't know how many likes and things like that they got on social media. But we, we went through the opinions of whoever took the time to answer polls or focus groups, things like that, said Mark and I would be looking at more substance this time. So I, we, Mark and I haven't talked about this before, but for the Republican electorate, which you know a thing or two about, yeah, I've, I've run and uh, won as a Republican uh, three times. Not a very high office or anything, just a state-level party office. But What was the highest office you ran for? A delegate to the state convention for the Republican Party of the state of New Hampshire. All right. What year was that? Uh, it was several years in a row, and it was uh, I, it was on even numbers. I know that much. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, 2012 was probably in there, uh, but it was three different times. Did you ever get there? Yeah, I won all three times. Wow. And how was the parties? How was the partying at the party? Uh, we had uh, soggy sandwiches one time that I remember very clearly. I uh, wasn't very happy about that. Um, the mornings were basically listening to uh, Republican politicians hoping to get a little money, monetary support from you, uh, maybe put out some yard signs, those kind of things. The afternoon was voting on... Uh, the party platform, which was really the reason I was there. I had, uh, you know, a couple of axes to grind. And, um, you know, basically the, the, the party allowed one out of the three times they actually allowed a vote on the issues that I cared about. Um, other than that, it just got passed. It got, just sailed away. Just sailed. Through. Open bar or cash bar? I don't know that there was an alcoholic beverage available. Oh. <laughs> Well, it's, it's not the Michigan Republican Party, which I'd have to send, show you some of the videos from some of their gatherings, but we will, uh, we'll save that for another day. When, 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 we, when we convert this show to video stream also, where we can share some of this stuff, we can show the GOP Republican women at the state convention shoving each other and knocking drinks out of each other's hands. Oh gosh! And that's something that that's that's called a tease in the business, marks for, <laughs> for our audience to to look forward to in the weeks or months or possibly not for years to come. But we will, when we have the capability, I you have my deepest intent to show that. Mm. All right, but, okay. So, so pick pick what you think might be. We got a I got got a lot. I've got a a buffet of issues here that we I. I be happy to talk about where they fell down or, or stood on these issues. So what's the number one issue for the Republicans that you thought would come up in the debate? Well, um, I would say that right now what you have to do is position yourself as somebody who can 
drag the economy out of uh, the dumper. Uh, the Republicans are basically saying that uh, Biden has uh, screwed everything up. And so, you know, whoever gets in next is going to have to have a plan for handling that. Right. And I think that's the strength of DeSantis and Vivek, right? Vivek's got the whole, I was a businessman thing, which plays very well um, to the righties. And DeSantis has the experience as the uh, chief executive officer of the fourth, fifth, uh, third largest state in the union. Well, they did talk about the economy. They did share this idea that uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats are destroying the economy of the United States of America. And that, um, you know, they were all going to be the, the solution to the problem. But they, they seem to point out, most of them, that they had to get people jobs that they needed to create, they would create 10 million jobs and they had a plan for that. That was, that seemed to, I'm not saying all eight of the people up there used the number 10 million, but I know Mike Pence, you know, had, he had a plan for 10 million jobs or if it wasn't a plan for the jobs, his plan for the economy would create the 10 million jobs. And I say, it, actual creation of jobs by a president um, is a not all it's cracked up to be. It has a lot sure. to do with the economic policy that comes out of Congress, has a lot to do even more with policy of the Federal Reserve, and then, uh, mostly it has to do with macroeconomic trends and uh, what the economy is, is doing uh, in general. Uh, so, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think what you're saying is true. But that's the yardstick that we've been using for decades to measure uh, presidents, like it or not. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the Clinton statement is it's the economy, stupid. And I think it still holds true. I don't think it's the president's fault or uh, to their credit, uh, really, ultimately. But that's kind of what we do. I think that that's why I pick, personally, foreign policy uh, statements far more for whom I'm going to vote for because that's what the president is. The president is a guy who signs bills and sends the military places. So what he says about what he's going to do with the military is far more important to me than what he does with, uh, than what he talks about as far as the economy goes. And to back up my statement on that, I publicly stated on the air that if uh, Bernie Sanders got the nomination or something, I can't remember what the criteria was, is that I'd have to vote for him because Bernie Sanders was sufficiently anti-war for me to vote uh, for him. And that if he had, if, if America wanted Bernie Sanders' policies, America would vote for them regardless of what I wanted. So it didn't make a difference. But um, that, uh, that if they didn't want his policies, they could vote in Republicans into the House or Senate or both. And then... They would do whatever they did, and then um, uh, Sanders would just control the military. In which case, I would still be, I would be happiest with that particular result. And getting back to what you were saying, sort of toward the beginning of that, is that the American voter likes to be able to look at one person, the president, and yes. put the responsibility on the economy for him. If I'm doing well. 
He's a good president. If I'm doing him up until now. Him for now, Henry. Yes. <laughs> it's coming. There'll be a female. There'll be a her. Are you trying to make, or are you? Is this a a stealth endorsement of Nikki Haley? Um, I I think that the Republicans should be first to uh, to put up a, a woman. Uh, not, not put up, put him up. Uh, there's Ferraro Fierro. He was the vice president. Uh, I don't think there has been a nominee that has been female yet. Oh yeah, there was Clinton. Um, you know, I think the Republicans should have the first woman in office, and I think that that. It's very achievable. Yes, well, we have Kamala in the vice presidential spot right now. Yeah, I keep... Are you, any, anything could happen. She might still be the first female president. Uh, well, yes, uh, she could. And, She's a heartbeat away, as they say. Yes. And, and, it's not, and it's not the strongest heartbeat that I've ever seen. Oh, you haven't watched them do push-ups lately. <laughs> right. right, I haven't. Can, can Joe Biden do a push-up today? I don't know. He doesn't. He does. <laughs> he he isn't the type to put that up on his social media. He ought to. Uh, we we're getting far afield from the economy here, and as you said, it's the economy. You know, frankly, if we pick president based on how many push-ups you could do, I think we'd do a better job. All right. Back to Mike Pence, his ten million jobs. Back to a president can screw up the economy. Much easier than he can fix the economy. I think I made that point, but if I didn't, I just did. Um, but the fact is, the American economy is doing rather well. It's Inflation is a real burden on the average citizen, and especially for uh, families with children that are trying to make ends meet. So you may say, oh, the economy is horrible because... You know, you're paying more at the grocery store. You're paying uh, sort of leveled out at the, the gas pump. I just saw it today. They, they came back down, and the price of oil is back under $80 a barrel. Um, and that's – and I could also say that, you know, with Saudi Arabia cutting back on production and some of the other uh, attempts to limit supply, that um, you're not going to get much more improvement in that. But it, – it, People aren't going to like this because it doesn't fit the perception either. If you figure even at gas at, say, three seventy-five a gallon, and you compare it to, say, when gas was two fifty a gallon over a lot of the past decade and a half, gas got down under two dollars for a little while, but not very long, and it would come up into the high two dollars and back and forth there. When you compare that inflation, say compared to the inflation of the cost of a, a Hershey's candy bar, the candy bars showed a lot more inflation over time than gas prices have. But I digress. Yeah, yeah uh, gasoline it goes up, it goes down, and people vote. And I think one of the reasons is because people vote based on what the price of gas is at this moment. And, you know, they... You know, what's it feel like? Has it gone up or down in the amount of time that I'm thinking about right now? It's it's subjective. There's no doubt about it. I think that probably your average American voter probably asks themselves, is my dollar going very far? At the, how far is my dollar going at the grocery store? Um, what am I paying for sort of to live at a place, whether it's a mortgage or a uh, rent? You don't care and, for unemployment unless you're the one unemployed. It's true. 
However, you're more likely to be the one unemployed if you, um, you know, are, uh, if there's more people unemployed. So I think unemployment matters, but, you know, you know and um, there's such thing as underemployment too. A lot of people feel like, you know, I'm working, but man, I'm working my butt off. Tired. The unemployment rate is low. Our GDP it is. is surprisingly high. Uh, we still have a active housing market and people are buying at these mortgage rates of seven percent and higher what about the the dow and the uh standard s p 500 that's that's been going sideways for a while there's signs of um you know uh, an end of the bear market and that the interest rate increases have leveled off we're not going to have that we're you know, there's a lot of macroeconomic stuff that we could talk about and probably sure. drive some listeners away. But the bottom line is the economy is in good shape. People are employed. Wages uh, are – we actually – I actually have a chart with some of the well, – I, I think that people are still feeling the smart of six months ago when things jumped up in price. Yeah. And um, well, two, that's – Two years, really. It's over over the course of two years? Yeah, well, I mean, about 2021 is when we started to see the, the inflation moving up. And but let me let's get back to the original thing that we're saying. Where, where do they all come down in the republic? Nikki Haley was the main one that went outside the, her lane or the Republican debater lane on this. They all blamed Joe Biden for whatever the problems were that they were trying to tell the American people that we're having in the economy. I'm glad they could agree on something. We, we, uh, you and I on this show, we talked about reindustrialization and industrial policy in America over the last couple of weeks. Go, go to your favorite podcast site, and we are all on all the podcast sites, Mark. I checked before we went on. We can go to Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, iHeartMedia, uh, Podomat. You go to all of them. You'll find us. Just put in Reins and Edge, and you'll find us, and Help us build up those downloads, and the next thing you know, we're going to have T-shirts. Uh, <laughs> you you download our show, you stream it, you are going to be able to buy a reasonably priced T-shirt soon. Good. I'm, I'm I, in. I, I just decided to make that, that promise to the audience, Mark. Well, you're anyway. certainly doing more with the show than, uh, than I have done in a long time, so excellent. Nikki Haley. More power to you. No one is telling the American people, the truth. The truth is that Biden didn't do this to us. Our Republicans did this to, to us too. That's what Nikki Haley said. She Sounds accurate. $7.4 billion in earmarks requested by Republicans in the 2024 budget compared to the $2.8 billion asked for by Democrats. What were the numbers again running by me? $7.4 billion in earmarks for, by Republicans. $2.8 billion asked for by Democrats. This reminds me of a story about Dr. Ron Paul, who's probably the most respected politician on this show, uh, historically. Dr. Paul would, known as Dr. No, in the, uh, the House, because he'd vote no on everything, he would put the earmarks in for his district, like any good politician would. And then he would vote against the budget. Because at the very least, he understood that his vote didn't matter. <laughs> you know, like he was 435 people in here. This is unlikely to win or lose based on the vote of one person who always votes no. So, um, yeah, I thought that story was worth mentioning. 
Yes. Well, and, and it does speak to the number because if the Republicans are in control of the House, they're more likely to try and, and the appropriations in the House, they're more likely to stick their earmarks in there than the Democrats are able to stick there. Um, the, the Democrats will have to do their thing when it goes into conference and try and get their pork and goodies put in. Yeah. But it won't be the, the Democratic congressmen and women, it will be the Democratic senators. But she also said she took aim at Trump. This is a little subtle way of going after Trump, but not going after Trump and not diminishing your vote for Trump and for those other Republican voters for adding eight trillion to the national debt while also taking shots at DeSantis, Scott and Pence for voting to raise the debt ceiling during their time in Congress. All of which is is clever and cute in the way that you're framing the audio, the argument. But if we didn't raise the debt ceiling, which is a stupid mechanism anyway, in my humble opinion, or not so humble opinion, to do an appropriation and then have to do a second vote for to appropriate what you already voted to appropriate. Um, but, you know, Trump, $8 trillion, Biden, however many trillions, it just goes up and up. And it's really, you know, it's a percent of the GDP. That's what you really have to look at because we constantly run the debt. And is the economy growing in a way that you can finance the debt and pay for it? Well, the interesting thing is, is that all the money that we have is debt. It is borrowed into existence. The Federal Reserve note is a statement of debt that the United States government has against uh, the, the lender of last resort, the Federal Reserve. Um, however, I guess when I think of the, uh, the, the uh, debt, I think of, you know, like, what are we doing to coming generations? Because I'll say this, when uh, we can probably say the debt started under Andrew Jackson, I think he may have paid off the debt. He at least came really close. But everything since then is this debt that sort of existed since, by and large, World War II. But, you know, there's a little bit of World War I in there, a little bit of Spanish-American War. But, you know, mostly sort of the from the World War II era. And so, you know, let me ask you. There's people alive right now that voted during the time of, uh, you know, World War II. Do I owe you anything? Like, why is it that you can borrow against me when I didn't even live to pay for your little government programs, whatever it is that you want to do? Don't you think that the people, the United States people, should be responsible for what the, the you know, the, 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 the lizard people, the shape-shifting lizard people that they put into office, uh, their spending? I mean, it just seems so disingenuous that you, that right now, there are people, you know, just that have voted recently to put, lay debt on my 15-year-old son who knows nothing about it, but will at some point inherit this debt. And it's, it's just so yucky. Wouldn't you agree? No. No. <laughs> you no. like the idea your girl's uh, saddled with debt? Don't forget. Your youngest, in living in a foreign country that receives nothing from the United States, is still responsible for federal income tax. You just monetize the debt. That's what do you mean by that? You have a, a 
chronic inflation of 2%. So whatever you borrowed now, in 10 years from now, it's 20% less of the purchasing power of the economy. That, that, I'm, that, I'm a little fast and loose with that math, but yeah, it's sure. the easiest way to explain it. That Can you not whatever you borrowed now is paid for with greater, uh, more of the economy. I realize that this is the effectively trying to have a, a cogent conversation with a uh, urine-soaked hobo uh, with a uh, bottle of uh, Jack in his hand on the side of the road um, because that's what the U.S. economy is like. It, it takes no responsibility. A urine-soaked for... hobo? Yeah. It takes no responsibility. Zero. No, we, we pay our debts. Well, you, <laughs> you pay your credit card bill, but not the debt. The debt will never be paid. There is a battleship that has long been sunk that is not yet paid for. Well, you can do that forever. Well, that's the problem. That's the question. Forever, as long as you keep making more money. What if there was a plan? What if there was a plan? And I believe Rand Paul has introduced one that would actually pay off the debt with with very little, like I'm talking about, like one percent cuts and things like that. Hardship and and pain for the American people that is It would be terrible for a pea-soaked hobo to give up his alcohol for a decade, right? Like, it would really be be bad. It would be terrible for old people to be starving and for not to get health care. It would be horrible for kids not to have a school to go to. Um, I I don't think the federal government's making schools. That's usually local governments. But I'm talking about a one... A lot of federal money in schools. I'm talking about a That's 1% cut. 1% cut is uh, that, that that can be done across the board. Anybody can handle a 1% cut in whatever it might be. And look, I'm willing, if you want to play the board and talk about things like that, fine. There's some things I'll cut 2% and th- some things I cut 0%. Fine, if you're talking about little old ladies and kids, because this is where we always go. Oh, the children. Why did the children become dependent on government money. And by the way, you're just talking about public schools. You're not talking about charter schools. You're not talking about private schools. Charter you're talking about all the rest of public money. What's that? Charter schools are public money. Yeah, they're, they're a lot less public money than a government school is. Though. They offer I mean, less services. <laughs> really? <laughs> Seem like they're doing a heck of a lot better in many cases. Well, the... You know, I would beg to disagree. I say some would do better and a whole lot do worse. And a whole lot are scams that uh, are ways to get your hands on the tax dollars that you are so reluctant to pay to the, the government. Yeah, Why I don't do advocate for it. Some scammer's hand. I don't, I don't advocate it for it, and I don't think it's a scam. I think that uh, by and large... No, the individuals I'm talking about that have scammed millions of dollars out of different uh, charter school schemes that have happened. I'm not saying all charter schools. I'm just saying that there are scammers within the charter school system. Sure. Uh, There's probably teachers that ought to be fired within the public school system, but we'll never do that. Well, only if they crush the dreams of second graders. (laughs) Go back and listen to the first half hour of the show if you're wondering what I'm talking about there. Uh, Mark, I thought we were going to get into some policy here. I guess we'll we can try again on the next segment. 
it's really hard to talk about uh, talk to Repub- uh, excuse me to talk to libertarians about uh, economic policy. They they just tend to to get all stuck. Yes, I've noticed. And maybe we'll go come back. We really need to talk about Ukraine because that's where some of the uh, individuals on the stage really displayed some shallowness of thought. And that would be names to be discussed on the other side of these messages. You're listening to Reigns and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. Eleutheromania, the insatiable desire for freedom. We have been enslaved for all our lives. It's the new three-song heavy metal EP from Captain Kickass. Available now on your favorite music app or get it directly from CaptainKickass.com. Welcome to Reigns and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. Here in the second hour, we are going to try and wrap up final few thoughts on the GOP presidential debate that happened this week. But we have lots of other things to cover also. I'm Henry Reigns. I'm Mark Edge. And we beat the economy up pretty much in that last segment, uh, even more than evidently Joe Biden did to the Republican candidates. But I do want to point out just a couple things on whether the president actually has much effect on how many jobs are created in the economy based on you know, recent history, like the last, well, to me, recent history, the last 50 years. It's, for some people, that seems like forever ago. <laughs> let's start by just looking at Donald Trump and Barack Obama. Now, as I said earlier, a lot of the, uh, or at least some of the Republican candidates were saying, oh, well, I will create 10 million jobs in my first term as president. And how is it, that sounds like a big number, but what does it really stack up to? Now, when you compare Donald Trump's uh, first 36 months in office to President Obama, uh, you can... You have to remember President Obama took over in the Great Recession. So the worst job losses started under President George W. Bush, rolled into the first part of President Obama's term. So this number is actually comparison with the recovery. So Donald Trump on these particular dates, which came from the beginning of 2020, uh, looks at the first three years of Donald Trump versus the best three years of uh, President Obama. So uh, first 36 months of President Trump, 6.6 million jobs were created. Uh, The 36-month period that we're comparing in Obama's tenure was 8.1 million jobs, but he's coming out of a deficit of jobs, a loss of jobs. So you- So there's an opportunity to to build more jobs. you got 6.6 million, 8.1 million. Well, then let's compare it to 
other presidents. Jimmy Carter, remember he was supposed to have, well, you don't remember. Well, I, I could... <laughs> I was alive during Jimmy Carter. I wasn't, uh, you know, prob I probably wasn't somebody you should be asking about uh, presidential yeah. economic policy. Uh, but I would say this, um, that he is widely considered to be the worst president of my lifetime. And I think that it's pretty unfairly labeled. Right. And again, it's one of those things where, uh, well, the two things, the, the Iran hostage crisis definitely put a, a, spin, a negative spin on his presidency. But also there was a lot of talk about the economic malaise. It was probably the first time I ever heard malaise used in politics was back then with Jimmy Carter. Well, at Jimmy Carter's first three years in office, and remember the population of the U.S. was smaller than 10.1 million jobs created. Mm. More than the first three years of President Trump or the best three years of President Obama. Uh, Bill Clinton's uh, term, Bill Clinton was considered to have a successful presidency economics, right? Although he was coming following the George H.W. presidency, which the last uh, year or year and a half there was uh, recessionary, not the deep recession, but recessionary. Bill Clinton got 8.5 million jobs created in the first 36 months. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, who in the first 36 months, which I guess would be actually 64, even though he won the 64 election, he started before 64 because President Kennedy died at the end of uh, 1963. Um, he created, or I see, I fell into the trap there. Right, right, we're saying it, yeah. uh, but yeah. uh, you said it before too. 7.8 million jobs during the first 36 months. So actually, of President Trump, President Obama, President Clinton, Bill, uh, Carter, and Johnson, uh, Jimmy Carter had the best numbers, which probably, if you were to ask that as a multiple-choice question... It would probably not be where, what people would think. Right. So... Which president created more, uh, which president is was in office during uh, the most job creation in a three-year period, and then you give three of those choices that you, or excuse me, four of those choices you just had, Carter being one of them, I'll bet you people wouldn't guess. I would not have picked Jimmy Carter without having done the, the research on all this. So to get, out of, get us out in this segment of the Republican debate, which we've, we've covered exhaustively, probably not just us exhaustively, but there's two things I want to get to on this. One was Ukraine, and the other well, is the abortion debate. Let's start with Ukraine. So I, just to say about the Republican debate, this is instructive because one of the major parties in the United States got to get out on stage and talk about all the things that are important to it, including a war that right now is sucking up a lot of Americans' uh, you know, tax money, whether it's tax money they've got to pay now or, or just tax money they've got to pay in the future, it's you know soaking it in like a sponge. I think that Nikki Haley, uh, and I'm saying this from memory, I don't have the number in front of me. I think she said that the we've appropriated 160 billion dollars for Ukraine. It doesn't it's sound like a big money, but. Really, in both in terms of waging a war and in uh, the overall budget of the United States, 
um, it's not that big a number yet. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> as, as far as I'm concerned, it's too big. But, uh, you know, ask the people in Maui whether it's big or not. You know, they're probably asking for some disaster relief and getting far less. Well, you you can fix disasters for less than $160 billion a lot. Of what is war but in a disaster? Well, I guess that was a little hard-hearted. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, and we also forgot. Let me quickly. I, there's this. Let me insert one more thing on here because the candidates are asked, would they support Donald Trump? You know, these are all eight eight Republicans vying vying to be uh, president. And but the the elephant in the room, if you will, is <laughs> going to happen with President Trump. The elephant with the uh, with the comb over in the room. Yes, with his. Um, I see. I'm tempted to say the big orange elephant in the room. But that would be that would be going for the cheap shot, and you know I am above that. <laughs> I don't believe you're above that for a second, but um, I say go for the cheap shot. <laughs> uh, they they were asked. This was a like a yes no question. That would you support President Trump if he was the party's nominee, even if he was convicted of a crime? Arkansas Governor Asia Hutchinson said was no. He was a no from uh, a firm no. And I wish you could see the video of this, Mark, because working from right to left. And so Hutchinson was on the far left, not politically, but on the far left of the stage. And then Chris Christie. Don't think that goes lost on somebody. Yeah. And then just uh, left of the middle was Ron DeSantis. And on the, the right-hand side, um, over, and then between DeSantis and Nikki Haley was Mike Pence, who, remember, had a lot to do with how the election played out or the counting of the votes, electoral, electoral votes played out on uh, January 6th. And as you went over, you got the Nebraska governor and you got Ramaswamy there. And so the four on the right... Their hands went up almost in unison. Swam, Ramaswamy, he was up there almost at the speed of light with his hand. Because he had also said, uh, I, I will tell you right now that I will pardon Donald Trump when, and, and Pence was like. I believe he got a thank you from Donald Trump, by the way. He's so, uh, uh well, I, and, and Pence, obsequious. Pence interjected, uh, you're seeing very sure he's going to be convicted. <laughs> that's a nice I, uh, I said it with a little more uh, snarkiness than Mike Pence did anyway uh, Nikki Haley's hand goes up uh, the governor from North Dakota goes up um, Doug, what's his name <laughs> which is what we'll be saying in another eight months uh, right. about him then uh, Pence went up reluctantly and DeSantis I don't know if his went up before Pence, but visibly on the stage, you can see him wait until a majority of other hands went up before he put his hand up. Hmm. And there, in that profile of courage moment for Governor Ron DeSantis, he raises his hand, and Mark can see my hand, and it's like, <laughs> you know, I guess he had arthritis in his shoulder trying to get it as up. 
as a Harvard attorney, I can uh, appreciate him, uh, you know, listening to the entire statement rather than just, you know, jumping right in and then um, to go ahead and think about it for a second. I can, I, I can appreciate that. I don't have a problem with yeah, that. See which way the wind's blowing. Now, here's my I statement is, is that if Donald Trump's convicted, it doesn't mean anything to me. I think that the jury system is so corrupt in the United States that I, I you know, why in the world would we ask 12 ignoramuses uh, their opinion on this particular topic? But um, what I, I'm reminded of the Alan Dershowitz uh, quote. You know what? I'm not going to call it a quote. I'm going to encapsulate it because I can't do it. But um, basically what he says is if you want a conviction, then charge him with RICO or uh, conspiracy or any of these sort of thought crimes, these uh, frame of mind crimes, because you're much more likely to get the conviction with a frame of mind because people use the reasonable person uh, standard than if you uh, you don't. And you're much more likely to have that conviction overthrown on a uh, on appeal, which is where law is actually made. So my opinion is, is they're going to have a very difficult time keeping whatever conviction they get. But, um, you know, they're, they're just trying to tie him up, and, you know, that's fine. It's, it's all part of the game, I guess. Well, Chris Christie appeared to raise his hand, but he really just raised his finger to, <laughs> because that was the symbol for I want to talk. And then he, he clarified that, no, he would not support President Trump, but he did not want to lose a soundbite talking about it on, on the, the premiere of the debate season. I'm curious, uh, I mean, I'm more curious what the lawyers in the crowd said than uh, anybody else. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess if Ramaswamy is a businessman, he's, he's, uh, he's like, do you support Trump or not? Yes, I support Trump because that's going to be good for me. Oh, Ramaswamy um, was, climate change is a hoax. I'll say it and all these other people are bought and paid for. Or you could say, I'll say climate change is a hoax. Because I'm just a loose cannon with no have to actually govern anything anyway. All right. Uh, all right, Ukraine. I said we wanted to get to that. Two, two standouts here, not for good reasons, were Ramaswamy and DeSantis. Uh, DeSantis had gotten into trouble earlier in the campaign when he called the war in Ukraine a territorial dispute. Um, the it sounds like a territorial dispute. That sounds like an accurate assessment. Uh, no, that's it's much more than that. But uh, okay. everything is a territorial dispute then. But it is the the largest land war and the most uh, destructive land war on the continent of Europe since World War II. So I think when you call it a territorial dispute, that minimizes what's going on over there. It's the largest invasion that has happened since World War II. If NATO cared, why didn't they step in when uh, Ukraine was silencing political activists that wanted to in the East that wanted to secede? Why were they stopping people from um, running for office, throwing candidates in jail, and a whole variety of things? I mean, you because know, it's not about that. It's about imperialism, and you have the struggle between you mean shoving the Ukrainian government on a bunch of Russians who don't want it. No. It's about okay. getting control of the energy resources in your industrial and economic bloc and keeping it out of the Russian economic bloc. And that's what it is for Russia, too. It's the Russian imperial reassertion of its sphere of influence in Eastern Europe. 
And it leads also, we, you know, we can go all the way back to the fall of the Soviet Union and the, the, the George H.W. Bush administration, Secretary of State Jim Baker, uh, in their stated intentions not to expand NATO uh, eastward. But all that's water under the bridge now. Because since we uh, invaded Afghanistan and started to place our pieces on the chessboard in Central Asia, the, the imperial struggle has gone on as under the George W. Bush administration and carried through with the, the um, administrations that have followed that, with some, some with more enthusiasm than others. But we're in the midst of an imperial uh, confrontation, and that's... Oceania has always been at war with Eurasia. Yes. Or at <laughs> peace. Oceania has always been at peace with Eurasia. All right. As I told my accountant two years ago when he asked me, how do you think Joe Biden's handling this? I said, we will fight to the last Ukrainian. And I have repeated that uh, quote since then. It is uh, prescient. Yes. So what, where were we? We have a struggle. Oh, that's right. We have a struggle going on. And so DeSantis was woefully, I don't want to even say ignorant, woefully pandering when he first said that, I think, to Tucker Carlson. And because Tucker Carlson was carrying the water for the anti-support uh, for Ukraine. And people <laughs> carrying the water. <laughs> no. okay. A couple different metaphors there. Uh, anyway, but unfortunately for DeSantis, he was surrounded by uh, Mike Pence, who as vice president was, you know, well embedded in the imperialist uh, establishment of the United States of America as vice president and uh, carrying on that. Whether Donald Trump wants to admit it or not, when he surrounded himself with uh, Mike Pompeo, and is that Pompeo's first name, Mike? Yeah. And uh, who was came out of the CIA and then made him secretary of state. And, you know, uh, and... Uh, John Bolton for National Security uh, Advisor, who was part of the neocon movement. So Donald Trump's administration was imperialistic, even though at the same time his uh, people surrounding him were the elite imperialists of the establishment. Uh, all Donald Trump was able to do was undermine NATO uh, in his early years in the administration. Uh, which we'll go off on that. See, anyway, I don't want to get too sidetracked on this. Uh, Ron DeSantis was just parroting what he thought Tucker Carlson's audience wanted to hear and what uh, he has done throughout his preparation to run for presidency is to create talking points, whether it's anti-wokeness or going against Disney or all these other things. Well, He was just being Ron DeSantis. Let me get to Ramaswamy. Well, before you go on, I, I, just, I have a question. Um, isn't Tucker Carlson's audience largely anti-war? I would, I would describe Tucker that way, um, that he's, you know, much more of a, uh, you know, let's not use the military to solve this problem kind of Republican. 
um, which I have a lot of sympathy for this particular uh, position. DeSantis doesn't strike me that way. Right. Well, DeSantis came out of the, uh, the, the Annapolis, right? He was through, came through True. the naval. You got to be a little pro-military if you're going to the military the, academy, uh, naval officer corps. Yeah. But I think Tucker Carlson. I I don't know how sincere he is about that, but that has been his position um, going back into uh, the. I think even to, into the Obama administration because he was uh, anti. Um, the neocons, and he he had Tulsi Gabbard on his show, who um, spoke to that position too. So I, I will say he gave voice to it. I don't know if that's really how he feels because I used to listen to him when he'd come on Bubba the Love Sponge every week, uh, <laughs> and you know he, one's he, opinion can change in a decade. Well, sometimes uh, I understand. All right, you're not, you're not a big Robert fan. Kwame, you know he he said. That you know if they that he would cut off funding or that he would not continue funding or he would be skeptical of funding, but what I, what got me was when he said this isn't of our vital interest. And if you were to say that, I could understand where you were coming from. But if yeah. you're running for president of the United States and you think Eastern Europe on the the border with NATO is not a vital interest, then you're really either naive or pandering or just not very deep thinker about it because now NATO is there. And if it spills over into the NATO countries, you know, we're involved. Poland probably thinks it's a vital interest. Yes. yes. And we, you know. But I would remind everyone that the last time a missile struck Poland uh, the me- the media was the news media was very quick to say looks like a Russian missile hit Poland. Then we find out a little later, it turns out it's Ukrainian. George H. W. Bush said we weren't going to make Poland part of NATO, but that's all. Yeah, well, that's water under the bridge, right? Yes. So Ramaswamy says no, but what we really need to be not not Ukraine. That we need to be worried about the Russia-China alliance. I'm a, I agree that the Russia-China alliance sounds well, very bad. If you if you have the Silk Belt Road initiative that goes through Eurasia, and you have all these things that it's all integrated. It's you know the pipelines are going through Ukraine, are going through Turkey. You know the the that is part of the industrial economic complex that they're trying to build and establish as the center of gravity of the global economy. So the pipelines that are left. Well, you can build more pipelines. <laughs> they, the routes, can blow more up. The, the routes don't go away. And then and Biden can act like he doesn't know what, he's ta- what anybody's talking about the oh, whole time. Mark, I wanted to put this to bed in this segment. We are still... Now, we, I, I don't even have time to tell you what Nikki Haley said to Ramaswamy about that. I'm going to have to do that on the other side of these messages. And, and really, I will not let Mark drag me through this for more than one more segment after this. But it will be a great <laughs> segment. You have my word on this. Like, any, like, like the presidential candidates, you can take my word to the bank. You're listening to Range and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. 
the Shire Free Church offers a sanctuary to those seeking an escape from state churches. The Shire Free Church is an interfaith, diverse group of people that may not share identical theological beliefs. As a member in or minister of the Shire Free Church, you are a sovereign individual and may be the faith of your choice. We don't claim to have all of the answers. We are open to all peaceful people. We want to learn from each other. What unifies the Shire Free Church and its diverse members is peace, love, and liberty. There are many paths to God, one for every individual. The Shire Free Church does not define a specific path beyond these parameters that must be your foundation. Peace as your way. Love as your guide. And liberty as your light. Learn more at church.shiresociety.com. That's church.shiresociety.com. It's Rains and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. I'm Henry Rain. I'm Mark Edge. And as promised, we are back here, and I am holding Mark's feet to the fire, giving me a good toasting, metaphorically, because I will finally get to tell him and you all what Nikki Haley and Ramaswamy were fussing and fighting over at the GOP debate. And we're going to try and put this whole thing to bed in this segment and move on to other items of import. But we were talking about Ukraine. We were talking about the different positions. We talked about DeSantis and some of his uh, comments about the territorial dispute, etc. And then we talked about Ramaswamy. He had said he was a, did not find it in our vital interest. What? He said, What's not in our vital interest? Pardon me? What is it that's not in our vital interest? Uh, giving money to the Ukrainian government to fight the war in their eastern part of the country and trying to reclaim territory, etc. All right. He said, I find it offensive that we have professional politicians who make a pilgrimage to Kiev to their Pope Zelensky without doing the same. You know, that's really offensive to the people of Ukraine because they actually have... Uh, a couple of different Orthodox churches. They have the the Russian Orthodox Church. They have, um, I believe, the the Greek Orthodox Church, or one of the offshoots of that. It's there. the Orthodox Church, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's multiple oh. Orthodox churches. I didn't really know that until I saw the conflict between the different uh, branches that have uh, representation in Ukraine. Anyway, Screw them. They can use they can use my dollars to dab their eyes. Who Who is dabbing their eyes with your dollars, Mark? Zelensky, for one. He's not crying. You think he, you think he leaves uh, poor from this office? No, of course not. <laughs> I bet he doesn't. You're talking about the, I'm talking about disrespecting the people and churches of Ukraine by calling Zelensky their pope. I, don't I think, think that, the I think Zelensky has undue yeah. uh, you know, power over the American people, and that's probably what they're talking about. Yeah. Well, anyway, to recap, professional politicians will make a pilgrimage to Kiev to their Pope, Zelensky, without doing the same for the people in Maui or the south side of Chicago. President Biden has gone to Maui. I don't know if, I'm sure sometime he's been to Chicago. I don't know which side he was on. But 
I think this is an old saw, right? Like, um, you know, how come you're giving money to this foreign government when you could be giving it to the American people? And I get it. Like, I think it, it plays well. But in fact, I say, if you give money to anybody, it's just going to be wasted. Government money is, you know, money you didn't earn. And the money you didn't earn just gets blown anyway. Nikki Haley accused Ramaswamy of wanting to, quote, hand Ukraine to Russia and, quote, let China eat Taiwan. You are choosing a murderer, Haley said. And then in response, Ramaswamy said, I wish you success on your future career on the boards of Lockheed and Raytheon. (laughs) Haley shot back. You have no foreign policy experience, and it shows. And the governor of South Dakota does? Isn't well, that what she is? He, he was keeping his mouth shut in that exchange. So, <laughs> no, no, I mean, isn't, isn't that what Nikki Haley is? No, what is she? I'm sorry, what's her experience? She's the former ambassador to the UN and the governor of South Carolina. South Carolina, okay. Yeah. I see. Ambassador uh, of the UN. Yeah. Yeah, that's a little bit more than Ramaswamy. Wind wage war. I, you know, I mean, <laughs> these these people blowing it and blowing up uh, other people's kids have done such a great job so far. I I do have no confidence that Ramaswamy is doing anything but saying what he thinks. I think he's uh, also he's talking about qualified. sending the military across the Mexican border to uh, you know for incursions there to solve the drug problem. He's for that too. I believe he is. No, we wouldn't want to ascribe him something that he isn't for. But maybe if we applaud not enough he'll for it, he'll say it. Anyway, <laughs> the, the other thing that isn't directly to this is when Mike Pence had, um, well, we, we haven't really talked about Nikki Haley and the abortion argument. And one of the, when they got in on that on the debate, they, one of the, uh, moderators, I think it was Marsha McCollum, said to Governor DeSantis, Governor DeSantis, you signed a six-week abortion ban in the state of Florida. Will you sign a six-week abortion ban for the federal government? And he said, let me tell you what I want to talk about. (laughs) He went off on a tangent. And there are Didn't other, want to talk about abortion, apparently. Yeah, there are other state. Well, he stands for life, etc. Anyway, he never answered that question. Uh, Nikki Haley tried to thread the needle on this when that she said, "Why don't we level with the American people? We're not going to get a federal law passed. We don't have sixty votes in the Senate, and we won't get a majority now in the House." Let's leave it with the states. Let's try and build a consensus to what Mike Pence said in one of those uh, lines that if I were Scooby-Doo, I might go, and he goes, well, consensus is not leadership. I'm like, I thought leaders build consensus. But that was just me and an offshoot of that. Anyway, um, Nikki Haley was saying, can't we not demonize women? Can't we? And one of the most telling lines was something to the effect of, can't we, why do we have to tell women they have to decide this issue as in deciding the voting booth? In other words, don't let the, the women, 
think that they need to vote, uh, you know, uh, for their reproductive rights. Mm-hmm. You know, let's let them think that nothing will happen if they just vote for us. When every one of these uh, politicians that was in office has signed off uh, on stricter abortion bans, and it was all very disingenuous, but it does speak to how worried they are about this issue that even Mike Pence and some of the other ones were. Uh, Mike Pence even was like, well, he didn't, he didn't answer the six-week question or, or the federal question. He goes, I mean, he did it indirectly. He goes, 70% of the people want, uh, of the electorate wants a 15-week abortion ban. And the other ones were also talking about how the Democrats want abortion uh, on demand up until the birth, the date of birth, which we've talked about this before. It doesn't happen. It's very rare. Um, so the well, it's, 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 because it's, of the life of the mother, right? The the vast majority of the time that they do a third trimester abortion, and I'm talking about you know these the the so-called late term. I think is probably the, the better term to use because that's the one that, that's the politically charged one. So these uh, late term abortions are generally employed, when they are employed, and they're pretty rare, um, comparatively, they're employed to save the life of the mother. And, like, that's the context that one needs to talk about these in. You know, if somebody's out there executing their baby... Abortion on demand the day before the birth. Right. If that's what they're doing, do we want them raising a baby? I don't know. Does it make a difference? I mean, like, how are you going to make the world a better place by incarcerating a mom who shoots their one-day-old baby? Doesn't seem like you're making the world a better place. I, I think it's rare to find a doctor that would be willing to do that, too. So, Yeah, I think it is. Yes. Especially if it's just for convenience. What we do have are actual cases now of where... Doctors, like in Texas or some of these other states, are telling uh, women that are pregnant with a non-viable child to let them wait for a miscarriage or a stillbirth rather than uh, terminate the pregnancy. And I, I haven't, I can't tell you I've read dozens of stories like that, but I've at least read high single digits of stories of this happening, anecdotal stories of this happening, which is probably a higher number than people that have abortions for on-demand reasons uh, the day before the date of birth. Yeah, I'm not torn on this issue. I'm I'm pretty clear where I'm at. But, you know, I'll go ahead and say that an abortion is ending in human life. It's just that I don't think that politicians, I mean, seriously – Pandering, lying politicians ought to get between you and your doctor? That sounds ridiculous to me. And I won't dig into the issue here, but both Tim Scott and Nikki Haley weighed in on the most important issue that a president will have to deal with in the next administration. And that's whether male trans women or trans men are using the right bathroom. Mm. I guess they would be young men, young women, because it all seems to revolve around schools. Uh, although here in Florida, the Department of Education just made a 
um, a rule, it's not a law, because it's something that they're delegated to, that staff at universities that don't use the restroom in accordance with the new law, because there's two things. So there's a new law that says you have to use the bathroom that's on your birth certificate. Okay. And if a staff... Wait, somebody checking that? Let's, let me finish this part. <laughs> if, if a staff person that's employed by the, the universities or schools don't do that, it's grounds for termination and they will be terminated. Which, yeah, that's all right. Seems like we should have a few more of those. I'm worried about. Um, anyway, uh, that, I, there was another thing related to that that I was going to say, but I already lost my mind. Look, I think these like uh, these high school kids have gone soft. Look, if you're not going into the boys' bathroom in high school with your uh, handkerchief over your mouth so that you can breathe through all the cigarette smoke, you don't know what it's like to suffer in the bathroom. Well, they aren't because there'd be vaping in there. <laughs> right. Now it's vaping. Yeah. But when I was a kid, we, we had, had to run the gauntlet of uh, long-haired stoners, Dio-wearing t-shirt kids. I was at um, a wrestling show about three or four weeks ago that was held in a Pinellas County high school uh, in the cafetorium. You know, they have a cafe, cafeteria that doubles it as an auditorium. Okay. And I used the restroom. And I was very surprised to see. I don't know if this is a thing now that is sort of the, the way things are constructed, but it, it makes sense that they would do it this way. The urinals were in a stall with a door, a single urinal in a stall with a door. And... The stall. Never seen that. There, it, everything was a stall, an individual stall. Okay. And the stalls only had about six inches of clearance at the bottom. Yeah. So. That's for mopping, by the way. I would think so. But I mean, uh, the, the privacy uh, is, was extensive and. Yeah. Higher than it was when we were than when I was in school. Yeah. I think that that's one thing that. Uh, parents kind of get stuck on is is that there's a move towards more privacy in bathrooms and uh, I mean I, I don't have a problem with it I I'm for privacy in bathrooms um, I can imagine as a business owner it's probably more expensive but uh, you know I mean yeah, that's what people seem to want and it seems like it'll cut down on some problems well you're not going to find that at the baseball game I don't think but it's Right. It's a captive audience. <laughs> so, oh, where, oh, I know what I wanted to say to you. This is what, because you were saying who checks the birth certificates? Yeah, yeah, who's checking birth certificates? Well, in this whole college thing, thing oh, let me give Nikki Haley's, uh, parents need to be deciding which schools their kids go to because they know best. And let's put vocational classes back into high school. Vocational classes are in high school. Um, let's teach our kids to build things again. I don't know what that means. <laughs> when we do that and we allow that innovation, that's when I'll get back. And yes, I will always say I'm going to fight for girls all day long.
because strong girls because strong women, strong women become strong leaders, and biological boys don't belong in the locker rooms of any of our girls. And that's was her closing statement on that issue. But what I was going to say is when you say who will check the who will go to the problem the trouble of checking birth certificates. There was there is or was because it was last year, so possibly they graduated a female athlete that was exceptionally skilled and proficient and head and shoulders above all the other young women that she was competing with. And this was in Utah. And the parents of the other female athletes felt that there was no way that that could, she could have been born with, you know, female genitals and grown into the female that she was. And they insisted on getting, and I don't know what the laws in Utah is, how they can do this, the records of this young woman all the way back to kindergarten to make sure that she, in kindergarten, she was enrolled with the girl's name that she had in high school. Well, it's a good thing that we have government records of uh, students going all the way back to kindergarten. So these well, things they... can be pulled up when uh, lunatics wish to use the state in order to, uh, you know, just hunt down their stuff. I mean, you know, first it's the, you know, the girls, uh, you know, athletes in Utah. Then it's uh, Japanese Americans being put in internment camps. Or Chinese that want to buy farmland in the U.S. Well, but you remember back in school when they say this will go on your permanent record. Back in kindergarten, apparently, <laughs> I don't know. If they, I don't know. If they told me that in school, but you know. oh, I heard that. Yes, not not to me directly. As you know, to some of the troublemakers, the permanent record thing I complied. Uh, was a was a threat in the past. Yeah. So no I doubt, was a but client student for most of my studential career. Yeah, if you if you don't know if you don't have a little conflict with the school, then you know you don't have anything to talk about. Well. We have talked about Tucker Carlson today, and we've talked about President Trump and about President Trump not being at the debate, but he, he in turn, did an interview with Tucker Carlson that was to be released during the debate. I don't know if that was just a... Was that because he was on his way to... Was that the way because he was on his way to the county jail in, in no, Georgia? No, Thursday night is when he was on the way to the county jail. This okay. was to be published Wednesday evening. Oh, okay. And Tucker Carlson asked him, and you got to remember, President Trump is under Secret Service protection. It's still. Sure. Yep. He said to Trump, it started with protest against you, and then it moved to impeachment twice and now indictment. Are you worried that they're going to try and kill you? Why wouldn't they try and kill you? Honestly, there is some journalistic inquiry. To which Trump responded, they're savage animals. They're people <laughs> that are sick. So, which is the more uh, surprising? That Tucker would answer that question? I mean, would ask, ask that question? Yeah. Or that people would take it seriously? Well, or I think if you think... I think if you think that uh, the world is controlled by a secret cabal of, you know, one cabal, uh, 
that uh, you know these people get their way that they used harp to uh, set fire to Maui and um, you know that you know any variety of things um, that you would have to ask yourself this question: How did Trump ever get to be president? How? Uh, did he get to be such a good president, right? Because, uh, you know, Reagan was supposedly this great guy until he got shot, at which point, you know, he became more statist or some, some theory. Um, and then how is it that whomever does the assassinating of the people that, uh, with whom well, one disagrees, how is it that Trump has managed to uh, evade these assassins? Well, there's a time and place for everything, Mark. Meaning that it's coming? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that if if it were coming, there would be a time and a place. <laughs> Indeed there would. Um, I don't have an explanation. I'm just asking questions. Well, you know who knows a lot about time and place and timing and placement? Uh-huh. That's Vladimir Putin. Okay. Because coincidentally, to this whole discussion, the Russian mercenary chief... You might have seen this this week. It was in a lot of the papers and media. Yevgeny Prigozhin, also known as Putin's chef and also known as the head of the Wagner mercenary group out of Russia. And some of his top lieutenants were presumed dead in a plane crash that was widely seen Thursday as an assassination to avenge a mutiny that challenged President Vladimir Putin. Now, you remember that mutiny that happened, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, maybe? I think it was, yeah. was a whole month. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the founder of the Wagner Military Company and six other passengers were on a private jet that crashed Wednesday soon after taking off from Moscow. There was a crew of three, according to Russia's civil aviation authorities. Rescuers found ten bodies, and Russian media cited anonymous sources in Wagner who said Prigozhin was dead. There's been no official confirmation at the time of this report. At Wagner's headquarters in St. Petersburg, lights were turned on in the shape of a large cross. Oh, that's appropriate. Uh, several Russian social media channels reported that the bodies were burned or disfigured beyond recognition and would need to be identified by DNA. And I've already seen, you know, some people that are, or, or some uh, speculation that, oh, he faked it, you know. Fake the death of everybody in his top leadership position. Because if you're going to do one, you need to do them all. I was asking myself the question, what well, is he doing in Russia, period? And But even a semi-official uh, commentator in Russia said, I think I would go with the obvious answer. <laughs> <laughs> Claimed on uh, messaging asked that the plane was deliberately downed or targeted, etc., where do you get 10 bodies is the first question I have. Top associates listed on the manifest included Valery Chekalov, who was Wagner's logistics mastermind. Remember, they got to get stuff all over Africa and everything else. I mean, that's they have mining operations there. Uh, in charge of managing uh, mercenaries and securing weapons. Yevgeny Makarian, who was wounded while fighting with Wagner in Syria. The crash also came the same week that Russian media reported that General Sergei Sorovakin top commander of Ukraine, who was reportedly linked to Prigozhin, was dismissed from his post, who he probably has a little bit of a nervous twitch going down the street now. Uh, basically, the, the, the people that died were in the top level of management of the Wagner Group, which is sort of unusual that they would all travel together. Be in one plane. 
in a country that they just tried to stage a call it a coup. Um, well, maybe. I, yeah, but he had been able to come and go freely. So you get to that point where you've got to come and go, and then it's just sort of you're just playing the odds. I'd probably go like to some place that wasn't in Russia. And then there's some other things about the details of who they were, but evidently they they were top leadership. They included six of Gozin's lieutenants, and by lieutenants they don't mean a, you got a bar on your sleeve. They mean it's like right. Vladimir Putin, but he made his first public comments about that. He 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 sent his condolences to the family. He said, "Is that like a threat?" Vladimir Putin sends his condolences to your family. Uh, I've got it right here now. He said that it's sort of a tribute to Prigozhin. He was a man of difficult fate, made serious mistakes in life. But on the other hand, he said was a talented person, a talented businessman, both in Russia and abroad, especially in Africa. Uh, I knew Prigozhin for a very long time, from the beginning of the 90s. So he's Talked about him in the past tense, so I guess it must be. He's, Vladimir Putin believes he's dead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's uh, I, you know, it's very sad. When I think of Vladimir Putin, the first thing I think of is, is the uh, the Super Bowl ring he stole, basically off the finger of an American footballer. Well, we're going to have to remind people on that when we come back after these messages. You're listening to Reigns and Edge on the Free Talk Live. Rains and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network, where we've explored unexpected, coincidental, retributional death in the last segment. Maybe we're going to talk about death again in this segment. But <laughs> before you do that, I'm Henry Rains. I'm Mark Edge. And we're here to talk about... Death being a fact of life. Oh, not if, not if the ones we're talking about can help it. That's right. There's four very powerful billionaires. There's more than four powerful billionaires, Mark. Actually, it sort of comes in the job description of, of a billionaire. is um, generally more powerful than the $100-air that might be walking next to you down the street. Peter Steele. So, hold on. Uh, I have some questions about this billionaire thing, because I have been in contact uh, with a person who claimed to be a billionaire, whom I knew wasn't even close. And I wonder to myself... How did you and, know that? Because I, 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 can, I can do the math. Well, maybe you hadn't have all the variables. It's true. Um, I'm taking a guess. You know, like It's no in the sense that I believe strongly, not no in the sense that I had, um, you know, proof. Anyway... I don't think anyone checks this billionaire thing. Mm. Like, I don't know whether it's how many assets you have, because it would be very easy to be a billionaire in the form of real estate uh, comparative to other assets, yeah. for instance. You could have 90% of your real estate hot in a hock, and you would then claim 100% of the real estate. Well, right? you shouldn't. Well, you shouldn't. And 
that's you know that's uh, I guess a foregone conclusion. But I mean, I very poor math. Yeah. Well, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know who's checking this billionaire claim. And like they have Epstein, uh, they called him a billionaire, and then by, by the looks of it, his assets were like 400 million. I'm not saying that's a small amount of money, but it's less than half of a billion. And so I just don't know. What's, uh, who's a billionaire? Who's not? What's that? I had not gone into his net worth. Um, it's just something. That. Just something I heard once. The I guess that people don't know what a centimillionaire is, and well, so we I, don't I use that so term. With the people we're talking about, that we will talk about, we haven't talked about them yet. They have uh, control of publicly traded companies, and you know how much how many shares they have, so you can. Uh, Extrapolate from that. Mm. I think people use it as shorthand. Millionaires and billionaires. Because a millionaire at this point isn't much. You know, the, the dollar's been pretty well devalued to where a millionaire isn't that uh, impressive of a thing. I, I guess it's your point of view. Uh, I, I think that there are people that have probably worked for a living, which is to say that they didn't have a uh, uh, their own business who didn't do like mogul-style real estate uh, investments, who paid off their house in, say, California. So, you know, now they own a... What's that? Florida. Yeah, some in Florida, but probably... uh, I mean, just your average house in California. (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, you pay it off and you're a millionaire. Do you know what um, the... Average house price is in Bradenton, Florida, where you come from, on 12th Street East, where all the shootings are. Not all the shootings, because we got a lot. We're of just talking. Around. We're just talking about one street. The average house price on a street is that right? That, that neighborhood, you know, a couple blocks either way. Those, yeah, so that that is no doubt an s hole. Um, and my guess would be that those houses would be somewhere in the uh, quarter million dollar range. Three hundred thousand. Okay. So that and those are those are s holes. Yep, s holes, s holes. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I mean, it just, uh, just don't want to go hyper local on this, but that, that's generalizing with the money to me for um, those homes. I get it. Houses cost too much in America. I I get that, but I mean, you know, they're, they're below the median house price in Manatee County by a long shot. So, yes, yeah. Okay. So we. So how did you find out? Did you confront this billionaire that was not the billionaire? Why would I? Well, how would I gain by taking a, a person that I call a friend? Um, how would I gain by uh, pointing out that he's not a? Not a well, then you would use reverse psychology. Uh-huh. Say, I am so proud that you're my friend that you. I've always wanted to know a billionaire, and I'm I'm proud and happy for you that you are one. He'd probably tell me you could be a billionaire too. All you have to do is claim to be one. Oh, well, then you would have validation in your theory. <laughs> Which certainly would. All right. Well, I know there's been times that I was not a hundred air. <laughs> <laughs> times Certainly, I remember those times myself. Yes. All right. 
But back to where we st started, or where I was trying to go from the starting point, four very powerful billionaires, which is where you digressed on who is a billionaire and how I know these people are billionaires. And to not go over the whole thing, these people all have well-established uh, ownership of equity and big companies. I'm willing to stipulate that these uh, men are billionaires. I'm fine. Peter Thiel, he was uh, one of the founders of PayPal, I believe. Yep. And he also, he's been very uh, active in politics. He um, supported J.D. Vance as senator in Ohio, and he's uh, been supportive of President Trump when he was president. And um, generally, the right-wing... Um, funny thing about a lot of these billionaires, they support right-wing causes, which generally have a lot to do with low taxation and being able to retain wealth and... Uh -huh. I imagine they more than anyone realize that uh, taxes are a large, uh, you know, drag on your uh, growth of your your money. Um, when I see that sixty percent, six zero percent of Americans can't put their hands on a thousand dollars, the first thing I think isn't, well, Americans just aren't making enough money. It's in fact that they just don't know how to manage their own money. Well. I would say a lot of it is that even with $15 an hour wages, if your housing cost is close to $2,000 a month, it's very hard for you to put aside $1,000 because that's not even including food or gas or some of the other things. That, Especially when you make excuses for yourself. Excuses for failure. Don't make excuses for yourself. <laughs> I... You know, I guess I've been uh, that poor before, and I know what it, I know that it was possible for me to do otherwise, and I did. You're making that fifteen dollars an hour, so you're making thirty thousand a year or thirty-two thousand a year, and you yep. take you you're, you even if you're not paying federal income tax, you're getting seven percent plus your Medicare tax. You're getting about eight or nine percent taken off the top. So let's say you're getting. Maybe you've taken home twenty-eight thousand out of that thirty thousand. Connection to that. Okay, let's just say you are just starting out you know, with your high school degree. You were wise not to have a child when you were that young and are still that young, and you're making your thirty thousand a year, and you're taking okay. home twenty-eight thousand, and you're all right losing about five to seven percent in sales tax. So. You're at about 27000 Now, you divide that by 12, and you're at about 2000 what, 2000 3000 2, somewhere between 2200 and 2400 Okay. So you get a quarter raise, you know, quarter, 25 cent an hour raise. Maybe you're making 2400 a month. And here in our hyper-local situation, your one-bedroom or even your studio apartment is going to cost you over $1,500 a month. And you're going to spend, I would say, even $5 a day for food, which is incredibly small. I would say... Oh, yeah, that would be way small. Yeah. So, but $10 would be $300 a month. So somewhere between... One hundred fifty. Let's say three hundred. Let's 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 you extravagant person that is spending ten dollars a day on grocery store supplies. Uh -huh. You're not even eating at the drive-through. You you are getting the hamburger helper 
and using half the amount of hamburger and spreading it out multiple meals. Okay, so then you're at, what did I say, 16, 1900. So now you're down to 400. Now you got to pay your power bill, which is going to be $100. Easily. So now you're at 2000. Now you get your gas and maybe you, maybe you're a prudent person and you're taking, trying to better yourself or something like that. And maybe in that $150 you have of margin at the end of the month on your $15 an hour wage. How are the you? Person who, the person who says that they cannot save because they don't make enough money and the person who says that they must save because they don't make that much money are both correct. Well, Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Mark Andreessen don't have those problems, Mark. <laughs> They've got different problems. <laughs> yes, they do. How do we live forever? Okay. And and uh, oppress the rest of the people while we... I can't wait for these guys to figure it out yeah. so that the price drops so that I can then afford it. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen fast enough for you. Okay. Want... Well, we'll see. Um, I'm rooting for them. Good for you. All right. uh, these people, see, I, I'm trying not to quote them because the, the writer of this article is interspersing with uh, quotes from historian Tom, Timothy Snyder. Okay. Uh, but the writer of this article calls them technocrats. See, I always thought technocrats were like the people that run the government and with the real technical jobs. Yeah, like, yeah, I would have thought that same too. That's just sort of, uh, yeah. You know, all the wonky like stuff. Yeah, but by that same token, it turns in the in through the influence of the techno technocracy movement. I call them technocrats in recognition of the influence of the technocracy movement, founded in the 1930s by Elon Musk's grandfather, Joshua Haldeman. Now, I thought he was from South Africa, Elon Musk. That's what I thought too. I wonder if if Gramp was. Maybe Grandpa's just a citizen of the UK. I don't know. Well, I mean, lots of Englishmen down, uh, or people with uh, from English of English descent down in South Africa. Now, th now the next sentence is important when people want to talk about the elite and they that control things. Uh, the technocrats make up a kind of interlocking directorate of Silicon Valley, each investing in or sitting on the boards of others' companies. Uh -huh. Now, this. So let's say, um, let's let's go back to the other segment when somebody said, "Congratulations, hope you make a lot of money, uh, Nikki Haley, on your job at Raytheon and Lockheed." <laughs> that was so let's say back. you're on the board of directors of Raytheon. Okay, now what happens if you're on the board of say Exxon? Now you can't be on the board of every huge corporation. But your friend on Exxon is on the board of the directors of Goldman Sachs. And, you know, and you just keep going around the table to the industrial powers, to the, you know, uh, GM, General Motors, and to uh, the Microsoft, and all these, until there's like, it's like playing the Kevin Bacon game. You're six degrees of separation from everybody in power. There gets to be a group think. 
you don't all have to sit around and say, oh, let's lower taxes. Nobody has to tell you that. Nobody has to tell you that uh, we don't want to have tax on unrealized capital gains. I don't think you should either, but. Um, I don't think it's possible to tax unrealized capital gains. What uh, what's going to happen if uh, if you know they tax me one year on my Bitcoin and then the next year it goes it it plummets? Um, are they going to then? What's that? They'll give you a credit. They'll give me a giant tax credit and then uh, then the next year it goes up and then it comes down and uh, what a ridiculous mess that yeah. is. Um, but you don't have to tell them probably either that. Oh, it wouldn't be good for me if my company got unionized. So there's a group thing that doesn't have to be a conspiracy. I would agree. Sure. I I mean, like, people in certain positions benefit from certain government policies. Sure. And so there might even be a group thing among people like, I don't know, Peter Thiele, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Mark Andreessen, that... Wow, if we had some technology to modify our DNA and our genetic makeup, that could be pretty good for me in a few years. Um, yeah, I think everybody would uh, say that. Yes, if they could afford the, the process. Yep. Anyway, these American oligarchs are controlling access to billions of users on Facebook, Twitter, Threads, Instagram, WhatsApp. Includes 80% of the U.S. population. Not the, the oligarchs aren't 80% of the population, but the people that use their stuff are 80% of the population. Uh huh. So you probably wouldn't need a whole lot of group think to think, wow, we could, we could influence public opinion pretty easily here. Anyway. Uh, the future they are now selling us. This again is by the author. However, crypto fortunes. The merger of the human and computer via, via AI and the prospect of spending our lives in the metaverse. I can't even talk anymore, Mark. We've been going on and <laughs> on. Or on Mars. That's a lie. The alternative reality these men are focused on is a world of techno-determinism, one in which AI may eventually do all the real work and a large number of humans may be rendered useless to society. And before I go in a little farther and let you have your say here. I think this is incredibly optimistic because they go on to say, so the, the rest of us, the little people, we'll be kept busy in the metaverse until we die off. What makes you think it's worth the effort to keep us happy in the metaverse? <laughs> <laughs> One good famine. Problems are solved. Right. Um, well, I don't know. I do agree that uh, it is difficult to imagine how the problems of the future will be solved. And that with AI and, say, robots or you know something like that, taking away the jobs of some, that we will, you know, like the world's going to look different. However, um, I think that that's a separate issue from the rich living longer than the poor. And uh, I mean, I can I mean, I, I can just see the made for TV movie here. Um, you know, this is this is perfect for, you know, like this separates the it clearly separates the haves and the have nots because it's clearly going to happen. But I would remind everybody of plasma TVs. 
I remember when I moved to uh, Keene, New Hampshire in 2006. I left uh, beautiful, the beautiful sun coast of Florida for the uh, frozen tundra of New Hampshire, and I brought with me my big screen TV. Now, what that meant then was this giant box that was probably something like five and a half feet tall. And Projection TV? Something like two and a half feet deep and required two men to pick up, two, two young strapping men, not uh, two fools like uh, you and I, old fools. Um, right. And, well, you know... Well, you thank could... you for including me. <laughs> you wouldn't carry this thing. You'd be a fool if you did. Um, and so, you know, at that time, plasma TVs uh, were probably just a, uh, a prototype. That's not that long ago, 2006. I mean, we're talking less than 20 years. And now you will be uh, hard-pressed to find a cathode ray tube TV. You'll have a hell of a time locating one. In 16, 17 years, it's completely changed. If you remember when the uh, plasma TV came out, um, now we call them LCDs or whatever, whatever we call them, LEDs, I don't know. And when, when they came out, they were like $10,000 a piece. There's no way that, it, you know, this is, how come the rich people get to watch TV on this flat thing with the, this really great, um, uh, yes, you were saying? detail and all that sort of thing. Well, well, what I'm saying is, is that now the poor people have the same thing. That I went to, uh, Sam's Club or whatever, and bought one of these, a big one, a big one. It was like 55 inches for $500. Oh, you overpaid. And so that's what's going to happen with age extension too, is, is that as the rich people pay for it, and because all of them are going to want it, the guy who's a little richer than the technocrats is going to want to live forever too, and they're going to be, and a doctor's going to be like, well, yeah, I'll do that for you. And he'll give him the treatment. Of course, the doctor gets the treatment. And it just continues to trickle down the ladder until somebody who's of average income can afford it, too, in the U.S. And then the U.S. is the bad guy because uh, the people in Africa can't afford it. I don't know if it really plays out that way, Mark. Name the thing that people actually want that has managed to stay in the hands of the elites for... Gold-plated toilets? What's gold-plated toilets? That's not a, that's, I don't want one. That's silly. My toilet does everything a gold-plated toilet does. Well, if I had everything else, then I might want a gold-plated toilet. And I haven't got everything else yet. Right. Well, I, I, I will agree that gold is a scarce resource. It hasn't trickled down because I'm still plenty of stuff that hasn't trickled down to me before I get to trickle in a gold-plated toilet. Um, I, I will agree that gold is a scarce resource. I conceded. A message. From one of our sponsors that we must play, and it is much more optimistic than the future we are about to paint. So you want to listen to this, you're listening to Reigns and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. A friend of mine wrote a book, and, uh, well, I'm going to read an ad for it. Are you ready to explore a grand-breaking alternative to traditional state structures? Discover entrepreneurial communities. An Alternative to the State by Calvin Duke, available now on Amazon in three formats. Don't miss the chance to explore this well-researched masterpiece, available in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. As a matter of fact, a friend of mine read the audiobook, too. It's not the best audio, but hey, you know, 
it, it's easier than reading. And that's available on Amazon. Entrepreneurial Communities, an alternative to the state, is a must-read for those seeking a new perspective on governance, efficiency, and individual freedom. And grab your copy today and be part of the conversation that challenges the status quo and changes libertarianism forever. Entrepreneurial Communities, an alternative to the state, available on Amazon in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. Get yours today and explore a future beyond convention. Entrepreneurial Communities, an alternative to the state by Calvin Duke. It's Reigns and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. And here in our last segment, we're wrapping up. I'm Henry Reigns. I'm Mark Edge. We're wrapping up, unlike the four billionaires that we were talking about, Thiel, Zuckerberg, Musk, and Andreessen, who are looking at other ways to prolong their life forever. Some things just need to come to an end. And that's how I feel about the third hour of most radio <laughs> shows. But for these other billionaires that want everything the way they want to have their things, they're the type of people that like the kind of things the way they like them, and they like them when they like them like they like them. Four of the projects they are pursuing, which they like, or to address the visions, will need tens of trillions of dollars, parentheses, mostly public, investment capital over the next two decades. The first project, supported by Andreessen, Thiel, and Zuckerberg, I guess Musk isn't too much on board with this, is Web3, a virtual world, the metaverse. I don't know that he's totally in the club. Accessed by virtual reality headgear, which despite all the clear benefits that it promises may end up converting the free web into an online theme. So a little editorializing here by the author of all of this. So let me um, go get to the the money statement of this paragraph in more ways than one. Uh, the second project is the support of cryptocurrency. As Adam Fisher, Israel's top-ranked venture capitalist, I didn't even know Israel ranks their venture capitalist, uh, has pointed out, quote, <laughs> Somebody's me? ranked their capitalists. Yeah, so somebody, maybe a... Somebody's top- ranked their venture capitalists, yeah. And really, what is he top-ranked? Is he the best bowler? <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> quote. This is a quote from Adam Fisher. You know him. Top ranked venture capitalist in Israel. Crypto is not so much right. an investment idea that aligns with the libertarian political ideology as it is a virulent strain of libertarian political ideology leveraging human greed through the blockchain. And I say to you, Mark Edge, someone that was on the forefront of bringing knowledge about blockchain and Bitcoin and cryptocurrency to the public, what does that word salad mean that I just read? (laughs) It means um, that uh, libertarians are bad, and that anything, and that they're responsible for cryptocurrency, anything that they're responsible for uh, must also therefore be bad. 
and that um, I really like it when my uh, particular brand of liars and thieves are in control of the money supply. So I am willing to give the other brand of liars and thieves uh, control every once in a while so that I can hope for the best as far as my liars and thieves go. And screw those libertarians. Well, okay. If there's one thing that Republicans and Democrats can agree on, is there will be no third party. Yes. They I, agree I, on that. I, I agree with that. And, and I think problem. I agree with them that because they believe that so strongly, that it will be true. Well, I think from a mechanical point of view, it, it can't happen. Because they've already... In, Happens in almost every other country. Right. That's why our founding fathers, may God rest in their souls, uh, when they brought the con U.S. Constitution down from the mountaintop and handed it to Moses, <laughs> along with the Ten Commandments, that's why it was designed to enshrine the power in tightly defined groups. Well... I think you're being facetious when you say it, but what no, I will, the, the, res, the response I would give to that is, is why did we get rid of the League of Women Voters uh, control over the uh, presidential debates? And the answer to that is, is because uh, the League of Women Voters could not be trusted to keep Ross Perot out. And that it is possible, it was possible up until the 1992 election for a third party candidate to you know, get up on the stage and debate. And if that was possible, then it was possible for the American people to vote for them. But now that will never be the case again. That the, it's fixed. So forget well, it. I don't agree with you because we already have a third party movement in this country for the 2024 election, but it is not for uh, expanding the idea or the contrary views. We're, we're going with the No Labels Party, which is designed to, um, what do I want to say here? Design to, to, for the conventional candidate, the one that is bipartisan, to prosper. At least enough to gain money for a campaign, get his, the, his or her uh, profile raised, and avoid being not reelected in West Virginia. So, on that note, I will go ahead and support any third party candidate who's running. At this point, I mean, like, I don't even care what they're running, what their platform is. So, you're, you would if support Joe Manchin. Somebody Man can beat the duopoly. Joe who? Joe Manchin, the uh, West Virginia senator. Okay. By the way, our, see, through the magic of, we're, we're sort of like these technocrats ourselves. And Mark and I have a video stream going to each other. But sometimes it gets a little out of sync. And that is why I was going, anyway. Uh, now, what, but I, what I saw here, it says, it's an investment idea that aligns with libertarian political ideology. It is not that, but it is a virulent strain of libertarian 
political ideology. And I think that they really needed some other adjective before the first half of that sentence aligns with libertarian political ideology as it is a virulent strain of libertarian political ideology. It does sound repetitive, I uh, noted myself. Yes. Um, Almost paradoxical or redundant. I don't know which. And I don't think it's... I mean, you know, is it virulent? I don't know whether it is. Does it spread? Um, It's spread to some, that's for sure. But I think that it's it's, uh, Bitcoin at its core is democratic. It requires enough people using it to be effective. And um, if the people want to use a different currency than the United States government's petrodollar, then why shouldn't they be able to? Or why shouldn't they use a cryptocurrency that sort of represents a democratic control or at least a representative control of the will of the holders of such cryptocurrency, much like Dash? This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash, Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases, but Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction and has implemented really cool features to ensure it is undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible and its network is protected from 51% attacks by their chain locks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering a Dash transaction complete. So it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Big thanks to Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash Dash.org. Wow, I don't think I could have said that better myself. <laughs> uh, well, we haven't even scratched the surface yet of the the real sinister part of these oligarchs' plan. Their third project involves supporting Elon Musk's $10 trillion pipe dream of sending humans to live on Mars. By the way, that seems like it's just obvious editorializing, and by the way, of this author... But I'm wondering if this author is an AI that uh, is like, you know, write a hit piece on uh, billionaires. <laughs> no, could be. Or it could be AI that's already taken over and is trying to propagate itself. <laughs> right. Wants to make sure that humans uh, die get, at 80. Once we get to trust the pseudonym of this AI, then it will really invoke the final phase of its plan. And the final phase of that plan just happens by coincidence to be the fourth part of this, which is the heart of a concept that is dearer to Peter Thiel. That is transhumanism. And to understand, this is again the author, not my words, what could well be the biggest lie of big tech requires a deep dive into the social movement, which is focused on R&D for, quote, Human Enhancement Technologies. I got hearing aids in the, my ear canal. Yeah, I, one wonders. I, what's that? Right. I'm wearing glasses. I'm wearing glasses. Am I transhuman? Um, I think that the, the transhumanism and life extension are linked. 
And I mean, think about it for a second. If your heart stops working and you get yourself one of those uh, automatic hearts or whatever, the heartomatic uh, 4000, then, you know, you're transhuman. And as things, I mean, presumably we will need fewer and fewer um, human hearts to solve the, the lack of heart problems or whatever. And that we'll be make, able to make other organs and these sorts of things. And then, I mean, how long can we keep a brain in a jar on a uh, remote control car? Um, how long can we keep that thing going? I don't know. But at some point or another, um, you know, people will keep paying for that. Well, why would you keep the brain in the jar if you just transfer the consciousness into a program? I think that's an interesting idea. But it sound, that sounds more science fiction than anything else. Like, if the brain contains the consciousness, and we sort of believe, and we pretty much believe that. I mean, there's probably some people who don't. But um, if the brain contains the consciousness, and you can keep it in some kind of rejuvenation juice in a jar, right? Like, that makes sense to me, that it's your consciousness. But um, the idea of taking your consciousness and putting it into a computer sounds as much to me like, uh, sounds as doable to me as uh, teleportation a la Star Trek. That, you know, the old brain has now been obliterated, atomized, and that a new brain that is acting like the old brain has taken its place. It's a better brain. It's a faster brain. Yeah, well, uh, sure. <laughs> you think about that. If... You could, if your every thought, every uh, action you took was stored in memory, there would be a program that could simulate the reactions that you've had over your lifetime and recreate it sure. in simulation. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I'm not saying it's not a good reproduction. What I'm saying is, is that it's a reproduction. It's not the same thing. So, for instance, if I decided I want to live in a fantasy online, um, you know, at age 90 because my body's given out. So give me a fantasy online. And in that fantasy online, I wish to reincarnate Hazel T. McDonald, my grandmother, whom you have met, <laughs> who has now been passed for, you know, three decades. Um, I don't think they and, were recording you know, her consciousness. They weren't, but let's say that they can do a pretty good job from my memories and um, you know whatever pictures we've got and things like that. And I don't think they'll do as good of a job of her as they would say of my mother, who still lives, um, but you know doesn't want anything to do with all this weird uh, technology stuff. Uh, you know, like say well, I want to build her out. In child that it was starting to be monitored from right from the get go. Sure. Um, they'll be able to do a, a great job of me. That way, uh, for Jack. consciousness would have all your memories, too. I was just talking to Ian this week about why in the world do we have to continue doing shows when AI already knows what we're going to say and can already take our voices and uh, simulate them. Why can't we have tw Free Talk Lives, uh, Ian and Mark, on the same show 24 hours a day, seven days a week, talking about libertarianism? I don't know. Why did you ask me to do it if you can do it? <laughs> Um, all I'm saying is, is I don't believe that um, at this that it's going to be some time uh, before I. Why well, can be replaced? That that um, that, that next week someone's mind can be replicated onto the internet. Uh, my daughter Janet has already made an anecdotal appearance on the show this week, but she might as well do one to close out. So she's been writing uh, using ChatGPT to write some marketing materials. Uh, for something that she's associated mm -hmm. with. 
And it's been doing a pretty good job. I hear that's great for that, yeah. Marketing. And so she wanted to, with one of her more recent uh, efforts, she wanted a good uh, quote as sort of a, uh, a lead, as sort of a hook line right at the beginning. And she asked it to find a quote, and she was looking for a legitimate quote that she could cite in the material. And mm-hmm. the chat GPT came back to her with just a, a credible quote for the, what they were trying to accomplish. And so she asked uh-huh. Ch- chat GPT, who said this? And chat GPT said, I said it. <laughs> I'm glad it's taking credit for it um, rather than just attributing it to someone who's yeah. close. I really, um, you know, I think that's that's fine. Once it gets enough quotes, then uh, people will use it as a source, right? Yeah. You know, ChatGPT has been uh, widely accepted in the legal profession because a lot of contracts can just be recreated and then it, sure. the attorney just acts as a proofreader. Where the- well, that's been that way for some time, really. Well, boilerplate, et cetera, but... Yeah. What what uh, has recently happened is it being used um, for filings and briefs on cases that um, that are you know going to go in front of the judge. And what they found on more than one occasion, somewhat more frequently than you would want this to happen, and of course you wouldn't want it to happen ever. But um, in the brief, the AI just makes up case law and cases. Mm-hmm. And you go to to research the case to for uh, you know more citations, and you find out that the case that was put into your briefing, uh, your brief as a, a citation fake. does not fake exist. news. <laughs> so it just goes to show you, AI is very creative. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. We somehow we got off the transhumanism and the human enhancement technologies. And I know what I wanted to say, because a lot of people, and, and I guess this probably is maybe even even for uh, fairly young adults, is, is too um, old to be a good cultural reference. But the Borg in Star Trek New, Next Generation, that's where the Borg were introduced. Our, I don't keep up with all the different Star Trek shows now, but do the Borg still appear in Star Trek? Uh, I don't know. I don't keep up with Star Trek either, but yes, you know I really are, right? I enjoyed them very much in yeah. uh, Next Generation, yeah. Uh, resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. It's, yeah, it's great. What what gets me is we all take the idea or the impression that being a Borg isn't fun. Being a Borg gives you the ability to multitask like Nothing ever before. You could be there chasing Captain Picard down the hallway, right? Trying to Uh capture him. At the same time, you're on the holodeck on your metaverse vacation. You could be having simulated sex at the same time you're torturing Captain Picard. I suppose. Right. In fact, you could be having multiple vacations. While you're torturing Captain Picard. Yeah, why not? Sure. So, so it's it's a brave new world, and you should embrace it. Yes, I should. Yeah, I see you're not buying into this one bit. No. Anyway, four projects, the metaverse, crypto, interplanetary colonizations, 
transhumanism, not to mention AI, are all a threat, according to this author. And all we will become is a human and machine meld into a new species of cyborg. And you'll be <laughs> leaping tall buildings with a single bound. Yeah, I think I can see this more so, but like, imagine for a second that they needed, let's say they needed, uh, you know, somebody to run an excavator. And the best person for that is one of these uh, people that's uh, kind of disembodied, right? Um, you know, maybe they just put you into an excavator and you're working all the time. Oh, like the Transformers. <laughs> Except we couldn't get the Transformers to work much. Well, you didn't have the right job for them. <laughs> Seems like they were just busy fighting Decepticons to me. If your job was to simulate a Volkswagen Beetle, you might want to do it all the time. Well, Bumblebee did uh, did that for... He seemed to, he seemed to like the kid he hanged, hung out with. The kid he hung out with. I can't remember what the last name was. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not a Transformers fan. There was a kid there? Yep, there was. Was it Chia LaBeouf? Yeah, that guy. Uh, well, that's the actor, not the uh, yeah. character. Well, you see what happened to him. The internet chased him around as a transformer than as a human. He's had his problems. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't shouldn't wish that on anybody because that would be me wishing for the transhumanism of someone. And we're all about the embodiment of humans right here at Free Talk Live on Rains and Edge on the network. Mark, what else is happening with you this week? Just uh, poking around Tegucigalpa. Wow. Oh, you know, by the time we talk again, President Trump will have uh, probably be out on bail. Yeah, um, we'll get yet another uh, mugshot of him. We have more than one? Yeah, I think I've seen uh, what I would consider a mugshot of uh, Donald Trump. Maybe it was AI generated. Uh, so, what? Um, what's your prediction for the coming week? Is uh, what are we going to want to talk about? We're going to want to talk about that. We're going to totally ignore it. We're going to go off on uh, pickleball technique, or well. Um, I must say that I am uh, I'm a big I'm a fan of pickleball. I, w- I wish I could play more than I do, but um, I think it's great. I think it's a great sport, and that it gets people moving who would not otherwise be moving. Um, so you know, I, I know people like to to poke I fun at into it. that, didn't I? Yeah, you did get me into it, and I like it. Uh, you're much more into it than I am, but nonetheless, yeah. I was hoping that you would kick something back to me. As we fill these last two minutes, I could just tell the audience how much we love them and think about them during the week, and we'll be working hard to bring them the best stories we can, but I'll let you say that. Well, I do uh, I do hope that we can bring them the best stories as possible, and certainly, um, you know, uh, Free Talk Live has always tried to bring the very best in content to them. Uh, it looks like some people have been um, AI generating mugshots of Donald Trump, some of them without hair. Um, I love these. Uh, <laughs> there's, if you look up Donald Trump mugshot, you will get some interesting pictures. And are you sure these aren't the real thing? 
But Donald I, Trump I, is I, I definitely have, not going to go bald. But I did see Rudy Giuliani's mugshot. Okay. And it looks like a... It's the real mugshot, and it looks like a character of him. They do have a, a nice background for everything <laughs> in this photo. So there's the logo, I guess, of the, the law enforcement there in the Cobb County. County Sheriff's Department, yeah. Yeah. And Giuliani is sort of hunched over. What's what's the character on The Simpsons that owns the nuclear power plant? Doesn't have as long yeah, as him, but um, he has the same posture as him. That was the, what I was thinking when I was looking at him, too. Is this, uh, whatever his name is, is the one that's always making a little sort of steeple with his uh, hands. Um, he looks like that. And then Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff of President Trump, uh, he was trying hard not to have to go in, but the, the judge said, nope, you're coming in, and he posted his bail. He has that look. It's like when something's happening to you, and you're supposedly like looking at it from above, like it's not really you. That's the look on his face as they're taking his his photograph there at the uh, Cobb County facility. I can imagine you feel very betrayed as one of these guys. You were thinking that Trump was going to be able to protect you, um, and then doesn't look that way. No, it, I think it's because he rolled over on Trump on the federal cases. Now he's got a roll over and drop the dime on Trump all over again in state court in Georgia. Been listening to Reigns and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. This is Mark Edge with Free Talk Live. Mark Warden with PorcupineRealEstate.com is one of the best real estate agents I've ever worked with. I've been through about two dozen real estate transactions in my life, and I feel like I know what I'm doing, but there's always the things that you don't know that you don't know. Mark Warden with PorcupineRealEstate.com found a problem with the house that I was buying that ultimately saved me $65,000. He's a consummate professional, holds his people to his own high standards, and I would unequivocally recommend him for any real estate purchase in New Hampshire. Don't sell yourself short. Contact PorcupineRealEstate.com.